This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. It's good to see you all. Hey, if this is your first time here, uh, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, normally, we teach through books of the Bible, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue to do such this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 21, 11 through 21 of Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand and keep it raised high, and one of the ushers will be able to hand you out a copy of a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take the one that we're handing out so that you could uh, grow in an understanding of God's Word and keep it. If you do own a Bible but you forgot it, uh, go ahead and just take one and then put it back or leave it in your chair and we'll pick it up later. A um, couple things. Uh, one is uh, we mentioned just a little bit ago about internships of younger people in the church who want to get involved in ministry. There's also something on the other spectrum. We're trying to get older people in the church to get involved as well. And by older, we actually this time really mean older than, than most of us in our 30s. And that is the Boomers, as a group of people who named themselves, by the way, um, they're getting together July 11th for a dinner. And so um, here's the requirements. If you are 50 or older, that's not $50, okay? Um, we wouldn't be there anyway. But it, um, it's, 50, it's 50 or older, you're invited to a dinner. If that's you and you're going, like, listen, I want to be a part of this dinner. I want to meet more people at this church that are 50 or over. Uh, why don't you go ahead and take the information card or the connect card and the seat back in front of you. Take some time, fill out your name, your email address, and then just put Boomer Dinner. Drop that off in the offering boxes on your way out, or you can drop it off at the Connect Desk, and we will send you information that you will need. And also, it would be on the website um, this following week so that you can be at that dinner. So for the six of you guys who are here that, are, that fit that requirement, um, we hope to see you at that, at that, at that dinner. Um, last thing is um, we um, have got a lot of emails and text messages and, and stuff on um, everything that happened this week with the Supreme Court decision and whatnot. And so here's what I'm going to say to you guys. Listen, we're going to do the same thing we did before last week, and we're going to do it this week, we're going to do it the next week, and that we're just going to pray. Like, we're, we're going to pray. God is still sovereign. He's still good. And we understand that people are kind of confused and so forth and um, what, what's good, what's not good. And all we need to do as Christians is seek the face of Jesus and pray, love everybody who God places in our, in our, in our face, in our family, in our neighborhood, and so forth in a way that Christ loved us, that is selflessly and uh, sacrificially. Amen? Okay, so with that, we're going to pray. And we're going to look at God's word. So let's pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign, good, you are in control, nothing surprises you. God, that you actively allow or cause all things to happen for your good and um, for our good and for your glory. And Lord, we ask right now, Lord, that you would take our hearts, no matter where they are on this particular decision, Father, and help us to be centered around Jesus Christ, the authority of the word of God, and be led by the spirit of God in all that we do, say, and think, Lord. God, I ask that you would tighten us as a community of faith, trusting in Jesus, and as we look to your word, teaching and challenges on faith, would you increase our faith and the work of Christ that we'd be able to remember all of what you've said, your promises, your faithfulness towards us, even amongst our faithlessness. So God, we thank you for that. Um, we pray that you would show up today, that you would remove me and anybody else on this stage, that we would see the cross of Christ, Lord, and you would draw us to yourself in repentance and faith and joy and love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this past week, um, all week, I was uh, at a family reunion in Orlando, Florida, um, and people were like, 
been asking me, hey, did you get a lot of rest? And it's like, no. Did you hear what I said? I was in a family reunion in, in Florida. Um, and just think about this. There's, there's 25 plus of my family members on my side of the family. We all stayed in one rented house in Florida. So just imagine your family members, 25 plus of you guys, kids, everybody, grand, grandma, grandpa, their kids, so my mom and her brothers and sisters, their kids, us, and then our kids, all in one, one house together. And then imagine them all being black. And then that's what you had, right? <laughs> and, and so... A lot of fun? Absolutely. Rest? Absolutely not. I mean, it was just out of control. Uh, and, and you know, when you're around family, the, the, thing, the first couple of days I start thinking, like, one, you realize how much of your family, you're, the, that it, how much you are like your family, whether you want to admit it or not. You start going, dang, we do that the same way. Um, the other thing you, you realize is, you, you begin to ask the question of, how come I'm not around them more? Like, how come I don't live around them? How come I don't, you know what, I should be around family. Like, why come I'm not day one, day two? Day three, day four, you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> what time's our flight leaves? <laughs> right? And you have all these people in the house and all these kids, and everybody disciplines their kids differently or don't discipline their kids, and, and you're trying to figure out what. I mean, it's absolutely chaos, but it was a blast. It was a blast. Um, one of the things that was unique was my uncle, who's always been like a father figure to all of us. In fact, he's even been a father figure to my mom and her brothers and sisters as the older brother. Um, my, my, uh, my aunts and uncles, mom, they got him this gift because he had just retired from 35 plus years in the military. And they gave him this plaque and they start saying all of these things that he's done and why he did it. Then he starts speaking and he starts crying. And we'd never seen him cry before. And my mom goes, I've never seen him cry before. And then my mom starts crying. I'm thinking, I've never seen you cry before. And then my aunts are crying. And I look at my kids. I'm like, you guys better start crying. <laughs> Hurry up, right? And we're just trying to realize this moment. And what it was was I know my uncle, and I love him. I mean, he's been uh, um, just a figure, a great figure, a role model in all of the guy's life and our entire family. Um, so professional, so well put. I mean, he's, he's close to 60. He looks like he's 35. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, please give me those genes, right? And, and, um, but I didn't really know him. Meaning there were all these things that he had talked about. Like the reason why he went into the military was that he saw that as the only means to financially be able to care for our family. That he took upon the responsibility of not just his own life, but our entire family. No one owned anything in our family. And he thought, if I can have the resources, I can send the resources back to, my, to, my, to his mom, my grandmother. We can buy and build the house together so at least the family could have a house and ownership. And then he stayed in the military to be able to financially continue to take care of things. He did not have children because he felt like all of his nieces and nephews, me, were, were his kids. And it was always that responsible individual in our family that kind of took care of everything. And he's just, just talking and talking and, and talking about why he did the things that he's done. And I'm sitting there going, I never knew that. I never knew that. And that's the way it is sometimes with people who are close to us, that we could be around people, we could, they could be people who we've known our entire life and not even know the core essential things of who they are. We completely miss it. In, in the story that we have for us today, or in the lessons that Jesus is teaching um, in Mark, he, he's giving us by two different groups, the disciples and the Pharisees, people who should know him, people should, who should understand him, who are around him, and ultimately miss the most important thing to faith or to religion, which is faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, you, you kind of know the word, you're around church, you're around religion, that you can be around it so much that you miss the, the focal point, which is Jesus and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so he kind of narrows that in and saying, the people who are the closest. Now, interesting enough, in, in what we have in our passage, He's going after both groups, the disciples as well as the Pharisees, for not having faith in him. He's not going after those who don't claim to know God. 
And so I want this to be a warning for those of us in this room who claim to know God, who claim to be followers of God, followers of Jesus, that the people who are most likely to miss it are those of us who are, quote-unquote, close to him. And so we're going to look at God's word here and look at what is faith. Um, what does it look like for us to have faith and how we are kind of like the Pharisees and how we are kind of like the disciples. Um, and ultimately, we need faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're with me, chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, um, if you were not here the last couple weeks, um, last week Jake taught, and what we learned about from, with Jake is Jesus healed the Syrophoenician woman, and he healed the deaf man, and then, and then he fed um, 7,000 people, 4,000 people, that Jesus is doing miracle after miracle. And so there, there was only a little bit of bread, only a little bit of fish. They fried it up, had a fish fry, and Jesus made enough for everybody. And so that has just happened, that Jesus performed those miracles. Now, after that, the Pharisees come to him, and they begin to argue with him. And if you haven't been tracking with us, the Pharisees were a religious group of people who were for holiness, who were for purity, all the things that Jesus was for. In fact, on paper, it should have been that the Pharisees and Jesus should have been the tightest. Like, they should have been boys. Like, one of the things that um, my wife recognized early on in our relationship is that when we went to the grocery store, we went somewhere else, if, if I saw somebody, I'd kind of say hello or whatnot, we'd make eye contact. But whenever I saw somebody that was also African-American, there was this immediate acknowledgement like, what's up? And they'd be like, what's up? And it was a connection, like, do you know them? No, I don't know them. But how come you didn't do that with them? Oh, you don't understand. Um, there was like immediate connection. There was a like-mindedness. When the Pharisees and Jesus should have had that relationship, that when the Pharisees saw Jesus, they should have been like, what's up? Or whatever their vernacular was at that language, right? There should have been some sort of head nodding or I don't know. Um, I don't know, right? They should have had that, but they didn't. There should have been mutual love there, but they didn't have that mutual love. They did not like Jesus. And what we're going to see now is Jesus begin to sigh at them and like he's frustrated with them. And so the Pharisees and Jesus, though both religious one religious and, and word, and one actually understanding the gospel embodied himself in Jesus. That the Pharisees and Jesus did not get along. Like, they should, have had, um, they should have had mad love, but they just had bad love. And so what we see is here is that Jesus, the Pharisees, Taylor Swift, they just don't get along. So, some of you guys will get that at 1 o'clock. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So, they were arguing with him. And in arguing with him, they're trying to disprove that he is the Son of God. They're not trying to test him to see, are you really God? They're done with Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about his teaching. They've experienced his miracles. They've seen his miracles. And they're going, we are done with this man who is supposed to be the Messiah. They did not want to accept him or believe in him as God's sent, chosen, anointed man to forgive sins the true sacrificial lamb. Everything that the prophets in the Old Testament had spoke about pointed to this man, Jesus, who was the Son of God. They wanted to reject it. They did not want to accept it. They did not want to accept that life would come through Christ. They did not want to accept that the kingdom of God would be fully established and embodied in Christ, that you can only have life in Christ. They did not want to accept that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. So they wanted to argue with him. And they said they demanded a sign. Now, the word sign there is not the same word that we have that translates miracle. Um, they've already seen miracles. They've already seen him do multiple things. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him cast out demons. They see him you know, feed 
multiple, multiple people with little amounts of food. They've seen him sea walk on the water. They, they've seen all these little things that Jesus has been able to do, and yet they still don't believe in him, and so they try to test him. And part of that is they don't accept Jesus to be who he says that he is. They're looking for God. They're looking for a Savior, but they don't believe that Jesus is the one in whom God has sent, who is God, and who is the Savior. And so here's what Jesus says. He says he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so when it says that Jesus deeply sighed, there's no other time in scripture except here that that phrase is used. In fact, in in Greek literature, it's only used in ancient Greek literature 30-something times. And every time that it's used, it's used to communicate that that person, he or her, um, is, is pushed to their limit of faithfulness. I mean, in, like Jesus is, is sighing, and, and another way to say it is he's saying, I am sick of the Pharisees. Like, he's done with the Pharisees. Like, the Pharisees asked me another question. Like, like that's the type of neck-rolling thing that Jesus is doing. Like, if you ask me another question like that, and, and he's done with them. Now, here's why. The Pharisees... The issue here is unbelief. They don't accept him for who he is. They, they may look for God, but they're not accepting that he is God. And we can have that, and we even experience that. When we're looking for something, we may say we're looking for God, but are we looking for the God of the Bible? Are we looking for a Savior? Are we looking for the Savior in whom God says is a Savior in Jesus? So a couple weeks ago, I got a phone call, and I looked at my phone, and, and, and it wasn't someone I knew because just the number came up, so it wasn't a name I knew, but I saw it was a 623 area code, which is the West Valley, so I was like, must be in for a fight. And so I answered the phone. <laughs> I answered the phone, and, and I said, this is Ricardo. And the guy goes, I'm looking for Ricardo. I said, this is Ricardo. <laughs> he says, this is not you. And I said, yes, this is me. And he goes, it doesn't sound like you. I'm like, well, it's me. He goes, are you sure? And, I, and then I get upset. I'm like, listen, I know for a fact who I am. I don't know who you are. And if you keep playing on my phone, I'm about to hang up. He goes, oh, easy, easy, easy. He goes, I just thought this was you. I'm like, this is me, right? <laughs> this is me. And he goes, okay, Ricardo Venezuela? And I said, oh, no. <laughs> Ricardo Stewart, uh, that ain't me. And he goes, see, I thought it was you. He's like, nah, that ain't me, right? <laughs> And it's like, we go on this, and it comes to find out it was a guy that I, I used to know years ago that had tried to call some other Ricardo and called me. But the point is, he was looking for Ricardo. I was Ricardo, but I wasn't who he was looking for. The, the, the Pharisees were looking for God. They were looking for a Messiah. The Messiah was right before them, but it wasn't who they were looking for. And then they said, Jesus, show us a sign. Do something crazy so that we may know it's you. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, you know what, this generation in science, he goes, listen, no sign will be done amongst you. Part of it was he's like, I've already showed you time after time after time after time. If you don't believe in me now, you're not going to believe. Also, Jesus' miracles were not there to authenticate that he was the son of God. Um, the miracles in themselves primarily were to show forth the restoration of the kingdom that was fully coming. So when Jesus looked at people, he looked at demon-possessed people and said, in the kingdom of God, there will be no people who are possessed by demons. And so he commands the spirits out. There will not be people who are deaf. And so he provides people to be able to hear. He says, there will not be people who hunger. And so he provides food. He's saying, this is, what, this is a sign. This is a picture of what the kingdom of God will be fully like when Jesus comes and restores all things here in this world. 
And, and, and now what you have is the Pharisees like, nah, it's enough. Give us more empirical evidence. Let me just tell you this. Um, you don't need more empirical evidence to believe in Jesus. He's given us himself. That's all we need. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that empirical evidence is wrong. Empirical evidence is needed in faith in some, in some ways. And what I, what I mean by that is this. God's not against empirical evidence. He's not saying, I don't believe in showing you things that are empirical. Our whole faith in itself is not a blind faith, which we'll deal with in a second. Um, we believe, just from history, right, there was a man, like empirical things, there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago in the Palestinian land um, who was named Yeshua, um, who said he was the son of God, who did things that people said were, that people believed were miracles. This man claimed to be God. He did things like God. He went on the cross. He died on the cross. This same man was buried in a tomb, and three days later, the tomb was empty. Let me just tell you, that's the linchpin of our faith, an empirical thing of saying, if the tomb was not empty, then we are hosed. What are we doing here? We could be watching soccer or whatever it is that you would do on a Sunday, right? Like, there's no point. Like, if you disprove the resurrection, then you disprove Christianity. So there are empirical things there. But because the tomb is empty, we have hope. So the Bible, Jesus, is not against empirical things. We're not against science or any of those things. It's, it's, it's saying, but no matter how much empirical proof and evidence you have, that does not give you faith. And what the Pharisees were longing for is if you show us enough, 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 then we won't need faith. And in order for us to know God, you need faith. It's not a blind faith, but you have to believe in God. That, that everything is not going to be before you. The Bible lets us know that we walk by faith and not by sight. So we're not going to know everything. We will never know everything there is to know about God. But what we do know, we have, and what we need to know most we have because God gives us himself. That's what we need is Christ. And the Pharisees don't want any part of it. And Jesus goes, the issue here is not your moral behavior. It's not that you're not good people. You're really good people. The Pharisees were good people. Because your issue is you don't believe. And then, I believe, some of the harshest words in all of the Gospel of Mark are said here in verse 13. So I'm not doing a sign to you guys. And in verse 13, he says this, And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Those first few words, and he left them. Those are the worst words you could ever hear, is that God left them. Jesus left them. And he didn't leave them because he didn't love them. The question is not, do we love God? Or excuse me, does God love us? We know that he loves us because he sent his son, that he so loved the world, that he sent Christ, that we may have life. The question is, do we love him? And the word lets us know that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. We will do what he says to do if we believe in him, if we have faith in him. But the issue here with the Pharisees, they did not believe He's not talking to people who are not church-going people. He's talking to church-going people. But there's a way that you can actually, actually understand right doctrine, healthy doctrine, have good religion, and miss out on what it's about, which is faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, and he left them because of their unbelief. The worst sin, right? Here, what's the worst sin? The worst sin, if there was such a thing, is unbelief. It's unbelief. All the other things that we do are a result of us not trusting in God to provide, to be who he says he is, to trust in his son Jesus. Everything we do is a result of not believing. But the heart of it is unbelief. And so he's like the Pharisees, and he goes, we're done. And they get on a boat, and they go to the other side. And then he begins to now confront the disciples. Because the disciples got to be thinking now, like, yeah, Jesus, you get these Pharisees. That's right, we out. And they get on the boat, <laughs> and they drive away. Now, verse 14 
Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, they being the disciples. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, be, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, here's what's happening here. The, remember, they just had the fish fry, right? And, and Jesus fed everybody. And the, the, the disciples became servants, and so they're getting everybody else their fish, their food, their bread. And then Jesus confronts the Pharisees. They get in the boat, and then they look at and they look down, and they realize, we only got one loaf of bread, y'all. There's 13 at least on that boat, Jesus plus the 12 disciples. And the one bread, they're like, we don't know how long this trip is going to be. Every time we get on a boat with Jesus, something crazy happens, right? He's, he's, uh, there's a storm happening. He's dancing on water. Like, there's all these things that happen. And so we may get hungry on this trip, and we only have one loaf of bread, right? And they miss, they're missing out. What had just happened? Jesus took a few loaves of bread, a few pieces of fish, and said, bam. And he fed everybody. They forgot this so fast. And they begin to look only at what was in front of them, only at the material, only what they can see, even though Jesus, again, was in the boat with them. And they're going, what are we going to do? And then Jesus begins to speak to them. And he says, beware. Watch out of the leaven of the Pharisees as well as, 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 as the Herod. As, of, of Herod. And leaven in itself, let's explain this. So leaven was, is another word for yeast, and so you put the yeast in the dough so that the dough rises. That's how it rises. It spreads to everything. And in biblical language and metaphors, um, leaven in itself is positive only in the Old Testament for the most part because it's a sign, it's a reminder of how God, God delivered his people out of the mighty hand of Pharaoh, and he delivered by his mighty hand into freedom. And they, they were to eat the unleavened bread all the time. It's what the Passover is all about. And the redeeming of the Passover is what we do as communion. The Lord took the Lord's Supper on the Passover, and he gave a new definition, and he's now truly the Passover lamb. So that was what leaven was used in a positive way to remember what God has done. Every other time, especially in the New Testament, almost 100% of the time, when leaven is used, it's used in a negative way. It's saying somebody's teaching, it's sin or influence. And so what he's saying is be careful of the influence of these people. Um, Paul says this way in 1 Corinthians, that one, one speck of leaven could ruin the whole batch. So purge yourself of this particular leaven so that it not, may not influence you. So saying, sin in itself can start small, it could grow. The influences that you allow in your life, those that you consciously or subconsciously allow in your life, they will affect the way that you live, you think, etc. He's saying, be careful of these influences. And all of us have influences, things that shape us, whether we know it or not, that begin to dictate the way that we live, think, and act. And he says, watch out for these two, the Pharisees and Herod. Now, we know what the teaching or the influence of the, of the, of the Pharisees were. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus says, this is the leaven of the Pharisees. And he says, it's hypocrisy. It's putting on, remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, hypocrisy was, that word was used of Greek actors who would put on one face and act a certain way. And when they change characters, they take off that face, put on another mask, and act out that character. Though they themselves were neither. And he's saying, be careful that you're not people who just give me lip service to the name of God, and I follow God, and I'm a Christian, and etc. but yet your whole life does not live that way. And so the Pharisees could be categorized as the religious conservatives of their particular day. He says, be careful that you're not just, oh, I'm all about truth, but you don't really understand how to love, and you don't really understand grace, and you say one thing, but then you don't live it out. And on the other hand, he goes, well, also be, be careful of the, the influence of Herod. And Herod goes together in Matthew 16 with Herod and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were a group of people who would be considered or categorized as the religious liberal group of people. And Jesus says, be careful of them too. 
because their issue was worldliness, meaning that whatever kind of would fit in cultural terms, whatever kind of was cool in cultural norms, that's what they would fit to. And so they could be categorized as people who were all about love and grace at the exclusion of truth. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be either one of those. Be careful of that. Whenever you, I hear people say, well, I'm kind of truth, and I know people love their grace, and like, I'm just about the word of God, I'm about truth. Okay, um, that's a problem too. It sounds good, I'm about the word of God. Anytime somebody says, I'm about the word of God, therefore, and they say something that's not about the word of God, it's no longer the word of God. Over here, you people, I'm about love, I'm about grace, right? We gotta keep up with the times. And anybody who says they're about love and grace with no truth, that's not even grace or truth or love either. Jesus is the only one. Guys, not us, not you, not this church. Jesus is the only one who is full of grace and truth. They are inextricably woven together. You cannot separate truth from grace or grace from truth. If it's biblical truth, it's gracious. If it's truly grace, it's rooted in truth. You can't separate them. And Jesus is saying, be careful, all of you who follow me. Remember, he's talking to the disciples. So let it be a warning to us. Be careful because there will be cultural and even church influences that can get into you that are not about Jesus. So he says, be careful of it. Be careful of these things. They can influence you. And when they get into you just a little bit, they affect everything. They affect everything. So don't be people who say, I'm all about truth, and you don't understand what true love is and grace is. And then let's not be people who say, we're all about grace, but it's not rooted in truth. Let's be people who follow Jesus and let him guide us and let him lead us and let the anointing of Christ and the spirit of Christ, the word of Christ, the people of Christ, um, the, the elements in which he gives us, all of the things he gives us to follow him, and let's pray for wisdom and discernment and how to follow him. Amen? So Jesus tells the disciples this, and he, he, and he breaks it down way better than I can. He can preach. And, then, and, um, and you think the disciples were like, oh, Jesus, man, thank you. They're still going... But we ain't got no bread, Jesus. Like, they're still thinking like that. We, we, we get that. We get that. But we don't have bread. Look, look what he says here, uh, continuing here in verse 16. He says, and they begin to discuss in one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> like, it's like, man, Jesus, man, you be preaching, man, when we go eat. Right? It's like, <laughs> man. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And he has a series of questions after this. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not, or do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of bread for 4,000? How many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They were like, 12. <laughs> and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? That question is, do you still not get it? And he's not telling them, you're idiots, you should know this. He's just saying how easy it is for us to forget who God is. Every time a situation, a, a minor crisis or a major crisis comes up, we get all rattled, Christians. And I'm I, mean, I know there's a lot of you in this room who are not Christians. I'm talking to Christians. Why do we get rattled when another situation comes up? There has been situation, 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 personally, corporately, nationally, internationally, and God is still on the throne. Like, none of these things go, uh, man, God was like, whoo, knocked me off a little bit. I'm back, caught my wind, right? <laughs> caught my wind, got me on that, didn't see that one coming. He's, he's never sucker punched. And not only is he not never sucker punched, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, Jesus has to be in this moment thinking like, Peter, Peter, 
your mother-in-law was sick, and I came and I healed her. Guys, we were on that boat together. You guys asked me this crazy question, do I not care that you were dying? And what did I do? I calmed the boat because I care for you. What did we do? What, did, what happened with the demon-possessed people? We cast them out. What happened to the people who were hungry? What just happened? People were hungry, and I fed them with a little bit. There's one loaf of bread. There's 13 of us here. Would I not take care of you? How is it that we easily forget? So what, what happens is the Pharisees and the disciples both don't believe just from different angles, which teaches us something about faith in Christ. On one hand, you had the Pharisees who were saying, show me, show me, show me more, show me more. They got the Jerry Maguire faith. Show me the faith. Show me the money. Show it to me, right? They're, they're, asking, they're asking for more, and Jesus is going, listen, I've given you everything you need, and more importantly, I've given you myself. And so when it comes to it, we've never seen people get argued into the kingdom of God. God has to sovereignly intervene, and he does so in revealing the truth of Christ. But on the other hand, you have people who Jesus is saying, you should know. Meaning knowledge actually informs your faith. Because there are, there are people who would say, I just believe in God, and I just, I just believe in God. That's all that matters, I believe in God. And that sounds really good. Like, all I need is God. I just believe in God. But which God are you talking about? Um, who is it that you're talking to? If you don't have a knowledge about this God, if it's not informed of the Bible, then the faith that you have may not be the faith in the biblical God in whom is the God who is sovereign over all the universe. Because then what happens is we, be, we begin to make up who God is to us. My God wouldn't do that. That's because your God is your God, not the God of the Bible. We actually know what the God of the Bible would do because he reveals it to us through his word. And so you can't have just faith. You have to have faith. You just can't have all empirical things because that you would need faith. But on the flip side, we don't believe in blind faith. The Bible does not teach in blind faith. It's not baseless faith. It has to be rooted in something that's true. Like the definition of faith that the writer of Hebrew gives us is the assurance of things hoped for, meaning the certainty of things that we believe God's going to do after even having not seen it, meaning there is a reality of truth and the promises of God. Because God has done what he said he would do, that he sent a Messiah, that this Messiah died for our sins, as according to scriptures, that this Messiah was raised on the third day, according to scripture, this is of first importance. We now can believe everything else that he says he's going to do. It's not blind faith but it's still faith. And so Jesus is calling both to say, your faith is not an event. Your faith is not even in miracles, as good as those are. Your faith is in none other than a person, God's son, and Jesus. And he's trying to call everybody to that. And, and the way that we begin to um, understand this faith, grow in this faith, is by constantly setting our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. Amen? And when we have this faith, we exercise this faith. Faith is like a muscle, that you have to exercise it. And if you know anything, if you get injured or something, that muscle gets kind of messed up for a little bit. It may take some time to exercise, get it back to where it was, and sometimes it gets begin, begins stronger than other muscles. Um, think of it like this. Um, when you start off learning how to drive, you get your permit or driver's license, whatever it is now, you, you, you learn how to drive. You're, when you take that driver's test at the DMV, you're the best, that's the best driving you will probably do for the rest of your life. <laughs> you, you listen to anybody. Anybody, you tell me what to do, I'm going to do it. Ten and two, I'm there. You got the blinkers on half a mile before you even make it a turn. People are like, I thought you were turning. I'm just giving you a heads up. 
And, uh, and it's like, you're perfect there. And then you're kind of nervous. You get your license, and you're nervous to get on the freeway. But then all of a sudden, you got the music up. You got your boys in the back of the truck. You don't even put, you put one hand on the, on the steering wheel, right? And you're driving so good. And then something happens, and then you start over again. And that was on cue with that baby. What happens is you have a baby. <laughs> and then you leave the hospital, and you're going. And your wife's like, you're not moving. I know. And then as fast as you go was like one mile per hour because you're like, there's a kid in the car, right? And you just start all over and practice driving what it's like with having a kid. But then you get used to it. You have the second kid, you let the second kid who's two drive the young baby home. Like that's just, that's just what you start doing. You practice and you practice. You continue to look to God. Um, you continue to look to God. And so when it comes to that, it is one understanding that no, no amount of empirical evidence could ever and would ever prove God. There has to be faith, not against empirical evidence. Because on the flip side is, there's no such thing as baseless or blind faith. We have to have our faith rooted in history. Like Jesus was a historical figure. But that faith in itself is knowledge that we need. We need knowledge of this particular God to know him. And as we know him through his word, as we know him through his people, as we begin to know him, our faith begins to continue to increase. And so three things that I have as we close here that will help us growing in our faith in Jesus, to reorient ourselves around him. The first thing is, we got to get on the boat. If you if your Bibles, turn back to um, verse 13 in chapter 8. After Jesus says those harsh words of saying, and he left them, um, it says he got in, they got in the boat again. The difference between the Pharisees and the disciples is, the disciples got on the boat. They, they had their doubts. Jesus is asking, don't you understand? Don't you have ears, but you ain't hearing. You have eyes, but you're not seeing. But they're still in the boat with him. There's still a proximity to saying, I may not know what I don't know, but I'm going to follow Jesus. When it comes to our faith, it is following Christ no matter what. That's what discipleship is. That Christianity is not about showing up on Sunday. It is giving our entire lives to Christ. A part of that is showing up on Sunday and being in biblical community, but it's looking to God, looking to the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going anywhere. We may try to go places, but saying it's get on the boat. And that's not how you just become a Christian. That's how we grow as Christians because our, our experience as Christians is we get on the boat and we get distracted. We jump off the boat. We try to drive the boat. We try to do everything else other than letting Jesus guide us and lead us through his word, his spirit, his people. And so it's constantly saying, Jesus, I may not know what I don't know, but I'm getting on the boat and I'm following you. You are sovereign and you are good. You are trustworthy. You are my God. I am not God. And so I'll follow you. So the first point is get on the boat. It's constantly redirecting your eyes upon who Christ is. Number two is you got to remain coachable. And here's what I mean by this. When I was in, you always learn these lessons growing up. When I was in college, um, my coach, my senior year, he's, I was getting on him about changing a play and how this play was wrong or whatever, right? I'm the player, he's a coach, that's what I'm supposed to do, tell him what to do. And uh, he, he says, I miss the freshman Ricardo. And I said, like, what does that even mean? He goes, when you were a freshman, all you do would ask me is, coach, can you coach me, please? I don't know anything. Coach, please coach me, coach me. And it was so easy, I would just give you things. And now, you think you know everything. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that stinks. <laughs> but let's go back to that play that I was saying that I think we need to change right now. <laughs> but that's the reality. We start doing things and we are able to listen from anybody. Think about when you first became a Christian. Man, you will listen to anybody. You listen to any pastor. You're just reading, and you're just, I want it. And then you start knowing a little bit. Like, oh, he, ain't, he ain't all that. <laughs> I don't even listen to him. I don't even read those books. And then so we kind of become prideful, prideful about something that we didn't earn. <laughs> um, 
remaining coachable is saying, not only did I start off by looking to Jesus and getting in the boat, I'm going to remain that way, and Jesus can confront me. Jesus can correct me. Jesus' people can correct me. The word of God can correct me. That I am not my own, but I was bought with a high price by the blood of Jesus. And so therefore, my true north is Christ. And the final authority, the highest degree of authority I have in my life is his word. And so remaining coachable is learning and growing, not staying ignorant, but as you grow, constantly realizing, I don't know what I don't know. But Jesus can come to me or anybody here and goes, don't you understand? And we can still be like, but we only have one loaf of bread, Jesus. And he's got to teach us what he's really saying. And so we got to remain humble. How we grow in our faith is constantly, by God's grace, um, having the appetite of God and God alone, allowing God to come in at any moment and redirect our lives that we may constantly be in the boat and follow him by remaining coachable. Number three here is look in the rearview mirror. That's how we grow in faith. You got to look in the rearview mirror. If you think about it, what a rearview mirror does is you look back and you see where you've been and you see what's behind you. You can even see where you travel. Now, you can't always look in the rearview mirror when you're driving. That's not good. Um, but when you do, you can kind of see where you've gone. And I think sometimes for us, like the disciples, we only see what's in front of us. And only seeing what's in front of us, sometimes we fail to forget who God is. The disciples saw one loaf of bread. They didn't see the bread of life. Who was with them? The one who says, when you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. I'm the one who actually does care. I'm the one who actually does provide. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who has saved you already from the storms. I'm the one who will save you from the penalty of sin. All that you have and all you need is right here. If you could just look back and see what God has already done. You're looking at the disciples, and then you can look at us. And we can look at our own lives and look at the rearview mirror. One person coined it theological reflection, where you look back in your life and you say, here's where God has shown up, this is where God's shown up, this is where God has shown up, and this is where God has shown up, and this is where God has shown up, this is where God has shown up. Did it hurt? Did I suffer loss? Absolutely. God never promised that it wouldn't hurt. He never promised that you wouldn't suffer loss. What he promised is, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Even when we try to leave him, God is saying, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. That's love, guys. That's biblical love, full of truth and grace in Christ Jesus. So when you can look at the rearview mirror and you know that, it's a lot easier when you look through the windshield because you can know it's the assurance of things hoped for. Even though I haven't seen it, God has proven himself to be faithful now, and I can trust that this God, Jesus Christ, will be faithful in the future. So I'm going to constantly get on the boat redirect my eyes and my attention on the author and perfecter of my faith, who is Jesus Christ. Remain coachable. That is a posture of humility and saying, God, you can always correct me. I can always be wrong. I don't always have to win the argument. I never have to win the argument because the ultimate truth is you. Your blood speaks a better word. And number three here is remembering ourselves that we can look in a rearview mirror that God has always been faithful and he will always be faithful in our life. Our role is to trust and place our entire lives in the hands of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without witness, that you have not left us without revelation, that you have not left us without Jesus, you have not left us without the Spirit, you have not left us without people, you've given us all these things, and your word promises that everything that pertains to godliness, you've given us. And so we have it all before us. Would you give us the wisdom to read your word, to know your word, to interpret your word, Lord, would you give us the faith to constantly look to your son Jesus, Lord, and not to our circumstances or situations? Would you give us um, a belief in your promises that you never leave us, you never forsake us, even in our darkest moments, that, Lord, it may seem like we have one loaf of bread or no bread at all, 
but you've promised to be the bread of life. And so, Lord, help us to feast upon you. Help us to live our lives in you. Help the promises of God to find their amen in Christ in our lives and not in the situations or the things in which we can see. But help us to walk by faith, Lord. Grow us as a community closer to you and closer to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.